try it again. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Excellent. Much better. Hey, uh, welcome again to Faith. My name is Mike. Uh, if you missed first service, we had a power outage. It was really exciting. Uh, there's no power in the building, and uh, hopefully the power will stay on for all of this service. Um, and if you're watching online, you're like, what happened? They kicked me off the live stream. That's what happened. So uh, send your complaints to DTE. All right. Um, so uh, a couple other things we want to make you aware of. Uh, in your bulletin, uh, there is uh, an advertisement for a position that we are bringing on here at Faith. Uh, in the midst of COVID, one of our administrators uh, had a child. And after her um, maternity leave, she's like, you know what? I think I just want to be a mom. And so uh, when COVID was raging, we held off on filling that role. Um, but we're at a spot now where we're going to um, bring somebody on to that spot. And so if you're interested in applying for that role or you know somebody who would be good for that role, um, again, that's in the bulletin. You can send uh, folks to that or you can check that out yourself. Um, and then also, uh, some of you know Katie and Lori Cooper. Katie is a young adult who uh, recently moved to Guam. And she's going to be spending the next couple of years there working as a midwife and has finally got all set up. And uh, her mom is uh, traveling home even as we speak. And so um, just want to pray for them as we get started today. So uh, if you would, let's pray and then we'll jump into things. Father, just thank you again just for an opportunity to be here and to worship. Just pray for your hand of protection on Katie, as she is going to serve, just pray that you would help her uh, to be the hands and feet of Jesus to the people she's going to interact with in the years to come. Pray you keep Lori safe as she travels home. God, we just pray that you bring uh, the right person on for this role and that you'd bring someone who is uh, excited about being part of this team and adding to ministry here at Faith. Just as... Um, we just kick things off uh, today. We just pray that you would speak your truth to our hearts and to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we are uh, kicking off a new church-wide series today. And by church-wide, what that means is uh, we're beginning a conversation on Sundays as we're sitting in rows. And then throughout the week in our small groups, we are continuing that conversation as we're sitting in circles. And we, we intentionally do this a couple times a year because we are convinced that we grow the most and we learn the best when we do it both ways. And so if you haven't gotten signed up for a small group yet, what are you waiting for, right? Like this is the time to do it. So if you're watching online, you haven't got signed up for a small group yet, and you love Jesus, you're going to sign up for a small group. Um, so you just fill out your connection card. James will get you taken care of. Or if you're in person, you can walk out these doors immediately to your right is the community station. You get signed up for a small group there. But as we get started today, we're going to start with a uh, brief anecdotal survey. All right. Um, and so here you go. You can just raise your hand if this is you and you're in the room. If you're on the live stream feed, you can chat in. This is me. Uh, so here you go. Who here today is interested in being more depressed? More depressed out there, right? Are there any goth people? Come on, this is you. Your chance to shine, all right? A anybody increase, you know, want to increase the, the degree of misery that they experience in life? Anybody? I've, I've got your solution. If you want to be more miserable, have a newborn. Okay, they will do it to you. 
It's like newborn children, they're like bringing little terrorists into your home, all right? They will, they will subject you to sleep deprivation. They will subject you to noise torture and chemical warfare on top of that, all right? Just fun for all my pregnant friends out there. Okay, um, who, who here would like to be more sad than they are currently? All right, anybody? If you're like, what is wrong with you? That's another sermon for a whole nother day, all right? Stay on task. Okay, let's, let's, let's get at this from a different perspective. Show of hands, who would, like, who would like to experience a greater degree of gladness in their life than they do currently? Keep those hands up, keep them up. Who would like more joy? Any more joy, people? Who would like to be happier than they are right now? Now, keep, keep your hands up. Look around the room. All right? You can put your hand down. Not terribly scientific, but probably predictable. All right? Most of the people I know, they don't want this. And even the ones who regularly do foolish things that lead to these outcomes, it's not because this is what they're shooting for. See, most people I know, they want this. They want gladness. They want joy. They want to be happy. Yet it's a funny thing. While most people I know want to be happy, so few people I know truly are. Now, if that's true for you as well, you should be asking, why is that? Why is it that so many people want to be happy and so few truly are. In this series, we're going to argue that it's kind of like my receipts, that the reason is found in, in the story of my receipts. See, a couple times a month, I sit down in our house and I do the bills, all right? And I've got this little routine that I work out. I sit down at my desk. I pull the bill basket up. You know, it's, it's on the top shelf of the bookcase, a little wicker basket. You know, for two weeks, we just throw all the bills as they come in the mail in there. I pull that thing down. I open up the bills. I pay a bill. And when I pay the bill, I put the receipt on the ground next to me. I'm going to save that for later. And then when all the bills are paid, I, I balance all the books, check, you know, book the, the sinking accounts, all that kind of stuff. Put the basket back up onto the shelf. I bend down. I pick up those receipts. I put them into a folder in the closet. I save them all for tax purposes at the end of the year. Now, not that long ago, I'm doing the bills. I get done, put the basket up there. I look down, and there's no receipts on the floor. Now, I know there were receipts, because every time I paid a bill, I put the receipt down there. I stepped over the goofy things, you know, to go to the printer and pull stuff off the printer. Like, but I look down, and they're gone. Now, you ever have this kind of thing happen? It's maddening, right? So, so I'm like, okay, let me check the desk. Nope, not on the desk. Look on the futon behind me. Maybe I put them over there. Nope, not on the futon behind me, right? I go out to the printer. Maybe I absentmindedly took them out there and set them down on the printer. They're not there. So now, now I'm getting suspicious of the other people in the house, right? Because here I am. I'm working hard to keep the lights and the gas on, right? And somebody's touching my stuff. So trying to keep the tone of accusation out of my voice, right? Started asking people in the house, hey, um, you didn't by chance go and pick something off the floor in the office, you know, like trying to help me out or something, did you? Nope, nope, no. Nope. So everybody denies it. So then, I, you know, like I got the two things going on, you know, like on one hand, I start to get nervous, and on the other hand, I start to get annoyed, right? Because my mom had early onset Alzheimer's, so whenever I have one of these things happen, I'm like freaking out on the inside, and, and th th then I'm like, no, no, no somebody's playing games with me. 
And that's not okay. Because in this house, if these kind of games are going to be played, I'm supposed to be the perpetrator, not the victim. Amen? Right? You know, this is not how this works in this home. So I'm like, okay, calm down. Retrace your steps. And I start checking every place that I've been. And eventually, sure enough, I pull the bill basket down off of the shelf. And there are the receipts. I absentmindedly, somehow, I don't even remember doing it, so maybe I do have Joanne's disease. I pick up the, you know, the, the receipts and I put them into that basket and stuff it up there. Now, here's the point. Right? It doesn't matter how hard I look. It doesn't matter how long I look. As long as I'm looking for those receipts in the wrong place, I am never going to find them. And this is how happiness works. One of the reasons that so many people want this and they don't have it is they're looking in the wrong place. And they can look as hard as they want and as long as they want. But while they're looking in the wrong place, they simply will not find happiness. Now, today and throughout the series, we're, we're going to make this point repeatedly because we find that, that both science and research and spiritual wisdom and the scriptures themselves point to this truth. I'll give you a, a brief example of this from, from the Bible. In the book of Proverbs, the writer will say, evildoers are snared by their own sin, but the righteous shout for joy and are glad. Now, one of the things the writer is doing here is in an indirect, subtle kind of way, trying to get us to see the difference between somebody whose life is ensnared and somebody who knows joy and gladness. And, and one of the main differences is where they are looking. See, a person with an ensnared life, they, they, they don't want this kind of stuff. They, they, they want this. And part of their problem is they, they think sin will deliver this. They're looking in the wrong place. And so they find their life ensnared. Whereas someone who's figured out, I'm going to look towards righteousness, they find the kind of things that they really want in life. Now, it's always fun for me when the Bible will say, hey, this is how life works, and then thousands of years later, researchers and scientists come along, and they start doing research in science, and they're like, wow, we just discovered something fascinating. This is the case here. In his book, The Law of Happiness, which is one of three resources, uh, they're, they're listed in your bulletin insert, one of three resources that we have shamelessly pillaged from to build this series, Cloud, Cloud points out, that there are three factors, according to research, that make up our happiness quotient in life. And what's fascinating to me is what research and science is telling us about how happiness works in your life and mine is very different than what we are typically told in our culture. See, we've been programmed to think that if we're going to find happiness, we should look in places like these. Like, if I want to be happy, it's money. More money, more happy, Right? Or if I want to be happy, I, I just need to find that somebody special and get them to date me and marry me, and then I'll be happy. Or if I, if I want to be happy, I just need to climb the ladder and you need to get that promotion at work. Or it's just, if I can get the, the, the nicer, bigger house in the better neighborhood, then I'll be happy. If I can just buy that new and you can fill in the blank, then I'll be happy. 
or if I can just finish my degree at school, then I'll be satisfied with life. If I can, just, if I can be famous, if I can be an influencer, that will make me happy. If I can just lose X amount of pounds, and that number is different for everybody, I'll let you fill that in yourself, right? Then I'll be happy. If I could just have a smaller this or a bigger that, and for sure you're going to fill that in yourself, right? Then I'd be happy. Now, again and again and again, we're told in our culture, this is the stuff that will make you happy in life. The funny thing is, research is saying, no, that doesn't work. Now, it doesn't, the research doesn't deny that these things don't play a factor because here's the, here's the deal. Here's why you won't find happiness here. Not lasting, consistent happiness. All of these things that our culture points us to are circumstantial. And, and here's the deal. Research doesn't deny that circumstances play a role. In fact, the, the first factor that contributes to your happiness quotient in, in mind is our circumstances. But what research is showing us is that your circumstances only contribute to about 10% of your happiness. So you could have all of your circumstances line up just right, and you just get this little bump. Just a tenth. That's all you're gaining. Just a little bit. And then on top of that, here's why this doesn't work. While, while research has shown that your circumstances will give you this little 10% bump, the other thing that research tells us is that your circumstances, that the happiness you experience from your circumstances working out, it doesn't last. It doesn't have staying power. The bump you get, it fades quickly over time. And here's the thing. Every one of us here in this room, we already knew this. It's why, it's why you can see somebody get so excited through November about Christmas coming. And then on Christmas Day, they get that thing they were hoping for, and they get the bump. Boop, right? And then mid-January, the thrill is gone. And by February, they don't even know where that thing is anymore. Right? Because your circumstances, it only moves the needle a little bit, and then it fades quickly. Now, the second factor that research points us to, I'll just warn you, it's a little bit disturbing when you think about it. It is our predetermined makeup. And, and research tells us that our predetermined makeup, it counts for about 50% of what makes us happy. Your genetics, your personality, things that are hardwired inside of you from birth counts for about half of what makes you happy. Now, you may not like that. You may not think that's fair. You may, you may, you may be like, well, that's a raw deal. I'm just a miserable person by nature. Just half of what makes you happy is hardwired into you. Now, th this is why you can go to a hospital nursery. Some of those kids are just content and they're chilling, right? Some of them, they're like screaming their full heads off. They're raising sand in there, right? They, they haven't had any circumstances yet, right? It's because they're born that way. Now, are there things you can do to influence this and to compensate for this? Absolutely. But by and large, you're just half of what makes you happy, you just got it. Now, the third factor that contributes to the happiness quotient gives us hope in the midst of all this. The third factor that contributes to our happiness quotient is our internal practices. And our internal practices, they, they account for about 40% of what makes us happy. Now, here's why this is good news, all right? You, you can't control your predetermined makeup. You have limited control of your circumstances. You are completely in control 
of your internal practices. Your internal practices have four times the impact that your circumstances do. And research is telling us that your internal practices, the, the, the way it moves the needle, that has staying power. The, the, the happiness that you gain from your internal practices, that's meat that stays on your bones. Now here's what's fascinating about this. When the Bible speaks to us about where to find happiness, want to take a guess out of which of these three it points us to? See, again and again and again, the Bible will point us here. It's almost as if God himself were saying to you and me, hey, why are you worried about what you can't control? That makes no sense. And for goodness sake, why in the world would you put all your time and energy into this stuff when it's barely going to move the needle and it won't last? It's almost as if God himself is saying to you and me, hey, you want to find happiness? You're going to find it here. So what we're going to do over the course of this series is each week we're going to look to a different internal practice that the Bible points us to for finding happiness. Because again, it doesn't matter how hard we look, it doesn't matter how long we look, if we're looking in the wrong place, we simply won't find it. Now, first internal practice that we're going to look to today is peace with God. Peace with God. And, and really, there are two different aspects to peace with God that we want to highlight. And what we need to understand is peace with God is absolutely foundational to a life of gladness or joy or happiness. Now, th there's a story recorded for us in the New Testament about a guy named Zacchaeus. And his story illustrates for us both of these aspects when it comes to peace with God. Zacchaeus' story begins in Luke chapter 19, and it begins like this. We're told that, that Jesus was entering into to Jericho. It's a town he's going to pass through. Living in Jericho is this guy named Zacchaeus, and that he was a chief tax collector, and he was wealthy. Now, as Luke begins here, part of what Luke is doing is he's pointing out a dichotomy that exists in Zacchaeus' life. See, on one hand, Zacchaeus has everything we're told by his culture and ours, that he needs in order to be happy. Zacchaeus has all the circumstantial stuff, right? Like, like Zacchaeus has money. Zacchaeus has a great job working for a global company. Zacchaeus is moving up the ladder at that company. Zacchaeus, he's an influencer. People in his community know him. Now, not everybody likes him. So he's got a lot of friends. He's got his haters, but whatever. He's, he's well known. Zacchaeus has enough money that when it comes to privilege and possessions, he can just buy them. And yet, we're going to see Zacchaeus isn't happy. He's not happy. And Zacchaeus, the reason that Zacchaeus is not happy is Zacchaeus doesn't have peace with God. And Luke alludes to this when he says that Zacchaeus was a tax collector. He's got all the circumstances down but he doesn't have peace with God. Now, one of the reasons you can, you can determine, okay, this guy doesn't have peace with God, he's a tax collector. Here's how this works. Romans come into Israel. They, they take over. 
And when they take over, they, they dictate to the Israelites, this is how your life is going to work socially and religiously and, and economically and more. And the way that the Israelites are called to live as God's people in the land, they cannot do that as a people who are, are, are oppressed. Romans don't care. They're just taking over the world. Now, they, they need to leave the military there in Israel to keep the Israelites pinned under their thumbs. And you've got to have a way to fund that military. And the way they fund that military is they tax the bejesus out of the people. Now, they need people to collect those taxes. And the crazy part is you have some Jews who are willing to collect the taxes for the Romans. They're willing to betray their own people. They're willing to betray their God. And here's why. Romans are like, listen. This is the amount you're going to turn in every year. You turn in this amount, we're good. They don't care how much the, the tax collector collects beyond that amount. And most tax collectors, they don't collect enough beyond the amount that they have to turn in to eat and live indoors. They collect enough to fund a lavish lifestyle. They are directly responsible for their own countrymen being oppressed. They are directly responsible for people they know living in poverty as they're trying to pay this just unmanageable tax load. Tax collectors, they were considered to be traitors, liars, and thieves. They, they were known for being greedy and selfish and deceptive. And, and when when you live that way, it'll rob you of peace with other people. It'll rob you of peace with God. It'll rob you of peace with yourself. Zacchaeus knew. He knew these things to be true about him. He knew because the religious community he was a part of was not going to let him forget it. And he knew because there were things inside of him that he couldn't shake that, that were forever reminding him of this. See, sometimes when someone does what they know is wrong, they, they, they can find ways to, to rationalize it and minimize it and justify it so they don't have to deal with, you know, with conscience and guilt and regret and all that kind of stuff. But when someone's willing to be introspective, when someone's willing to be intellectually honest, that gets more difficult like, I, I, I can rationalize, you know, why I had a right to take something that wasn't mine to take and it didn't belong to me in the first place. But when somebody takes from me what isn't theirs and they don't have a right to, all of a sudden I'm the first person to stand up and be like, that is morally objection, that is wrong. That is just wrong. Or I, I can find a way to, you know, justify the little white lie that I'm going to tell and, you know, how, why I'm going to bend the truth and why it's okay for me not to be completely honest here. But when somebody lies to me, that's not okay anymore. Like, I, I can find a way, you know, like, to, to minimize my lack of loyalty to somebody. But when somebody betrays me, that hurts. See, we've got all these ways to, to be like, well, they, what I did was okay. But when somebody does the same thing to us, we're like, oh, no, no, that's not acceptable. Zacchaeus was honest enough with himself. He was introspective enough to realize he'd, he'd done a host of things that he wouldn't be okay with somebody else doing to him. He didn't have peace. He, you see, he had 
this shame and regret over what he'd done and who he'd become. And he didn't know what to do with it. Because everywhere he went, there he was. But then he hears about Jesus, who claims that he can forgive people of their sin, who claims that he can wash someone's past shame and regret, their, their old life, he can wash it clean. And there's all this controversy that surrounds Jesus because of those claims. Zacchaeus doesn't care. He just wants to see this man. And so we're told, you know, Zacchaeus, you know, runs into town. He goes to the place where, you know, he knows Jesus is going to be. And, and the crowd's already lined up there. And, you know, he's a short guy. As the song goes, wee little man was he, right? And so he can't see over the crowd. Nobody's going to let him go to the front of the crowd. They all think he's a jerk, right? And so runs down ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. Now, I don't know what Zacchaeus expected was going to happen when Jesus passed by his tree, but I'm pretty sure he did not anticipate what Luke tells us did happen. We're told that when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And then everybody who sees this, right, we're, we're told that they begin to mutter. The people saw this and they began to mutter. All the good religious people who had written Zacchaeus off as being beyond redemption. They're not okay with this. He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. Now, we're not told how the conversation went at dinner. I appreciate John, you know, because John, like, you know, he records this, you know, you know, Jesus getting together with Nicodemus and records all kinds of dialogue. Luke doesn't give us any of the dialogue. But whatever happened at dinner, it caused Zacchaeus after dinner to jump up and make a declaration. Something happened in that conversation at dinner that changed Zacchaeus, and he begins to talk about it after dinner. After dinner, Zacchaeus jumps up. He says, look, Lord, here and now. I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And in response to what happened at dinner, and in response to the declaration after dinner, Jesus says, he says, today, salvation has come to this house. In other words, this man is forgiven. He's forgiven. His, his past, his shame, his regret, they are washed clean. Why? For this man, too, is a son of Abraham. Now, now this term, son of Abraham, in the New Testament, this is the designation for people who have faith in Jesus. Jesus is like, this guy's a son of Abraham. He's one of the people I came to seek and to save. Now again, we're not told how the dialogue went. But, but I'm convinced that however that conversation went at dinner, 
it caused Zacchaeus to grab hold of some ideas that later on in the New Testament, the Apostle John, he, he, he articulates for us in one of his letters to the church. John said this. He said, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So John's like, hey, if you're one of these folks who's like, I, I don't do guilt. There is no objective right and wrong. Like, I'm basically just a good person. I'm good. You're good. Everybody's good. We're fine here. John's like, ah, no, no, no. The only person you're fooling is you. Because every one of us has done a whole pile of things that we wouldn't be okay with somebody else doing to us. We already defined sin, and we've already done a whole pile of that stuff. Every one of us has sinned, and the one who says we, that, that we don't have any, we're just lying to ourselves. Instead, John says, hey, what we need to do, rather than deny that we have this, if we'll just come to God, if we will confess our sins, he will be faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we'll just come to God and agree with him about our past, if we'll ask for his forgiveness, he'll give it. And, and the version that I memorized this in as a kid says he, he will cleanse us. The, the, this version says purify us, but he will, he will wash that past clean. Now, how can God be just and, and, and offer us this kind of exchange? John tells us next. He says, he says of Jesus, he says, in Jesus we have an advocate with the Father. In Jesus, we have God the Son who goes to God the Father and says, hey, those people who have sinned, who have put their faith in me, don't hold their sin against them. Because I died for their sin. I died to make right what they made wrong. I gave my life as an atoning sacrifice for their sin." Somehow at that conversation, at dinner that night, Zacchaeus grabbed hold of these things. He found forgiveness. He found a life washed clean. See, for some of us who are watching online, or maybe for some of us who are even in the room today, we don't have peace. One of the reasons that happiness escapes us is because of what we've done and who we've become. And in those moments when we're honest with ourselves, we know we've done things that we wouldn't be okay with other people having done to us. And wherever we go, there we are. And I'm not saying this to try and be a jerk. I'm saying this because I care enough to try and help you find peace. John's saying, hey, if you will just come to God and agree with him, if you'll ask for forgiveness, he'll give it. You don't have to have your past following you around anymore. He can wash you clean. Jesus gave his life 
is an atoning sacrifice to make that possible. At dinner that night, Zacchaeus found that. It's the first aspect of peace that leads to happiness. But then there's the second aspect as well. And again, Zacchaeus highlights the second aspect for us after dinner. Remember, after dinner, Zacchaeus jumps up, he makes his claim, he says, you know, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. If I've cheated anybody of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. What Zacchaeus is doing here is he's connecting the dots. He's connecting the dots between his past, his newfound faith in the personal work of Jesus, and his life moving forward from there. He's like, listen, <laughs> if I'm genuinely confessing this stuff is wrong, if I sincerely am seeking forgiveness, I'm going to work to live differently now. I can't keep doing the same old stuff that made my life a mess in the first place. i got to work to be somebody different. And again, for, for, for Zacchaeus, John speaks to this whole idea. What Zacchaeus is figuring out, John's like, yeah, this is how it works. Again, later on in his letter, John says this. He says, if we claim to have fellowship with him, him being God, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live the truth. John's like, listen, if you're like, hey, I'm doing life with God now. I'm, I'm living life in community with God but I'm just going to keep on living the same old way that caused me to need forgiveness in the first place with no thought to my, my, my life moving forward here. John's like, again, the only person you're fooling is you. That's a lie. There's, there, there is no happiness to be found in this. There, you are going to rob yourself of peace here. God won't let you have peace while you're living like this. And here's why. It's because your Father in heaven is a good parent. He's a good parent. Let me explain what I mean by that. How many of you, you know, growing up, and I won't make you raise your hands, but how many of you growing up, from time to time, you weren't at peace with your parents? Just once or twice, you know? Some of you are like, I wasn't at peace with my parents all the time, right? Here's the thing. From, from like the ages of 12 to 21, if you grew up in a healthy home where your parents loved you, oftentimes... You didn't have peace because your parents told you no. There was somewhere you wanted to go, somebody you wanted to hang out, something you wanted to do, some kind of idea that you wanted to run with that your parents knew would destroy you. It would destroy you, it would destroy others around you, and they told you no. And you were like, I'll tell you why we don't have peace in this house, because you're a jerk. If you just tell me yes and let me do what I want to do, then we could have peace. And your parents understood. We can sacrifice peace now for the betterment of your life later. Or we can have peace now. And it's going to cost you later. And when later comes, we'll just tell you, no, you can't move back in with us. Uh-uh. They, they were going to either have peace now or peace later. They, were, they, were, they could have peace for themselves at your expense, or they could sacrifice peace for your betterment. I'll tell you right now, 
some, some of the more difficult times for me as a dad have been times where I've had to tell my kids no. Knowing it was going to cost me peace in my home and peace in my relationship with them. Especially when I could have just chosen otherwise. I could have been like, you know what? Forget the curfew. Just wander home whenever you feel like it, right? You want to hang out with who? Oh, my bad. If they're your people, they're my people. Tell you what, your mom and I, will just clear out of the house. You guys can have the place to yourselves. Just text us when you're done with it, right? You, no, you don't need to clean up. We got the mess. We want peace. That's not what good parents do. Good parents tell you no when they know what you're going to do is going to destroy you or others around you. Good parents, here's how you know you have a good parent. Their love for you is too strong to simply go along. Their love for you is too strong to simply go along. They're not going to sacrifice your future for their peace right now. Your father in heaven, his love is too strong to simply go along. He will force you to connect the dots and realize that there's, there's a connection between your disobedience to him and your unhappiness in life. With the second aspect of peace, he won't let us have peace. He will not let us be happy as long as we are doing things that are going to destroy us and others around us. Good parents don't do that. Your father in heaven is a good father. And so he points us back to John. He's like, you want to be happy? You want peace? Walk in the light. Walk in the light as he himself is in the light. Let the manner of your life consistently reflect who God is in his person. See, if we want to find happiness, we got to look in the right places. And, and foundational to gladness, to joy, to happiness is peace with God. Peace in both aspects of what it means to have peace with God. And so as we finish today, I would just say to you, hey, happiness begins with a life forgiven and fully surrendered to God. And so I would just say to you, hey, if you've never said yes to God's forgiveness, if you've never come to him and confessed your sin and been forgiven. What's keeping you from that? What is keeping you from being set free from the past? Or if at some point you have come to God and said yes, but there's this part of the old life that you know reflects walking in darkness, and you won't let that thing go. What's keeping you holding on? Like in either instance, what is worth sacrificing your peace for this? If somehow today you've begun to connect the dots and you realize, you know what? It's not worth it. Before we move on, we're going to pray. And if you need to 
find forgiveness for the first time and you're ready, I would invite you to pray with me. And if you've got a part of the old life that you need to let go of, and you're ready to, I want to invite you to pray with me. So let's pray together and we'll continue on in worship. Father, again, thank you that we get to be here. That as a good father, you are consistently communicating to us about where happiness is really going to be found. We don't got to stumble around in the dark, wasting our time, finding ourselves frustrated. Father, for some of us today, we need to start by just coming to you. So we just, we just come and God, we just agree. We have sinned. In our own way, each of us, we have things that we have done that we wouldn't be okay with other people doing to us. Forgive us, please. Not because we've done anything to earn it or deserve it, but because Jesus came and laid down his life as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We just we give ourselves to him and we want to begin this journey where we follow him. Father, just for some of us here today, we've got this piece of the old life that we haven't let go of. And we know it's robbing us. So we just, we just confess that thing to you. We ask you for wisdom and for grace and for strength to let it go. And in this area of our lives, to walk in the light as you are in the light. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.